This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California, coming to you from the root of the annual Rose Bowl Parade on Colorado Boulevard <laughs> in Pasadena. That was a great little commercial there, Craig. And, yeah. and this is Bob Ambrogi from Never Sunny, Massachusetts. Uh, although I just got back from California, and it wasn't very sunny there either. Uh, I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. And, Craig, I believe you write a blog. I do. It's called May It Please the Court. Um, but today we're going to be talking about... Uh, something that is not funny and certainly uh, very tragic. Um, on April 16, 2007, a tragedy at Virginia Tech rattled the world. Some 33 people, including the gunman, were killed on Virginia Tech's campus in one of the deadliest mass shootings in U.S. history. Over two dozen other people were injured. And yeah. today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we will uh, turn to the experts and discuss the issue of uh, legal liability in the Virginia Tech shootings. Should university officials have done more to prevent... Uh, the gunman from uh, from firing? Does a recent Virginia law prevent universities from throwing out a student with suicidal tendencies? Is this simply the responsibility of, of the shooter? Do colleges have too much responsibility when it comes to students? And what will be the outcome of this tragedy for the injured victims and the victims' families? Well, I'd like to introduce our first guest, Professor Anthony Seabach. He's the Centennial Professor of Law and Associate Dean for Research at the Brooklyn School of Law. Professor Seabach specializes in tort law and legal philosophy. His current scholarship has been focused in the area of punitive damages and the role that our liability system plays in resolving political disputes. He's authored numerous articles about mass restitution litigation, including those involving tobacco and handgun lawsuits and slavery reparations. He's also written extensively on the differences between European and American tort systems. Professor Seabox recently wrote a column for Fine Law entitled, Could Virginia Tech Be Held Liable for Cho Sung Hui's Shootings If an Investigation Were to Reveal That It Had Been Negligent? The Unfortunate Answer. Welcome to the show, Professor Seabox. Well, thank you. Also joining us today is Attorney Robert B. Smith from the firm Nelson Kinder Masseau and Satterley. And I'm sorry if I've... Uh, uh, mangled that name, uh, with offices in Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Uh, Bob Smith uh, joined his firm uh, with 26 years of litigation experience, including 14 years as Associate General Counsel for Boston University, the nation's fourth largest independent university. While at BU, Bob won numerous jury trials in state and federal courts involving claims of employment discrimination, disability discrimination, student affairs, academic freedom, police matters, contracts, and tort claims. Bob counseled multiple university departments and senior university management concerning the panoply of legal issues confronting modern higher education. Bob and his colleague Dana Fleming recently wrote an op-ed piece for the Chronicle of Higher Education entitled Student Suicide and Colleges Liability. Bob also writes a blog about colleges and universities. Welcome to the show, Bob Smith. Thank you very much. Well, we're, we've, you've both written some pretty interesting pieces on uh, the Virginia Tech tragedy and legal issues surrounding it. Uh, for our 
listeners who may not have had the opportunity to, to read those yet, uh, can you give them an overview? Professor Seabach, let's start with you. Uh, sure. Well, my piece uh, focused uh, on two questions. Uh, the first question is uh, the grounds of liability of uh, Virginia Tech uh, in general, and uh, I think uh, our other guests will probably have a lot more to say about that than I, I can say. But from uh, a bird's-eye point of view, there's nothing uh, unexceptional about the idea that Virginia Tech, as uh, either a landowner or as a university, has a duty to uh, students and, and staff uh, to protect them against uh, known uh, uh, risk, uh, someone who could uh, either, because they know in advance or during the attack, actually uh, be a risk to others. Um, and so I look at some of the uh, uh, legal arguments, the factual um, bases for these claims, of course, extremely hard to anticipate. We don't really know that much about what um, either uh, could have been the uh, uh, basis for the universities to know about the risk before it materialized, or even if after the first uh, shootings uh, they uh, acted unreasonably uh, in how they responded. Uh, and I want to leave that aside for the moment to go to the second point of my piece, uh, which is about immunity. Uh, and that really is uh, an issue unique to uh, state universities. And in Virginia especially, there is a, a number of uh, very uh, significant doctrines about sovereign immunity uh, that make the uh, ability to hold Virginia Tech as a um, as a uh, agency of the state uh, liable, which basically they, unless you could show uh, gross negligence or intentional wrongdoing, be impossible to hold Virginia Tech liable. And then um, sovereign immunity uh, in Virginia against the Commonwealth of Virginia itself is a very frustrating thing. I mean, there's a, a constant refrain in the courts that um, whenever they're dismissing cases uh, against uh, state universities, that the plaintiff was simply uh, should have sued the Commonwealth as if that is obvious and that why aren't they doing that? And of course, the answer is a couple of reasons, but the most important reason that suing the Commonwealth is really useless in the context of a of a very large damage case uh, because uh, Virginia's uh, uh, liability under their sovereign immunity statute is capped at a hundred thousand dollars, which may be significant in the case of a parking lot accident, but in this tragedy um, would be n not really enough to justify, uh, I think, to justify um, a serious uh, wrongful death uh, claim or even a personal injury claim. So uh, that's what I focused on, and it seems to me that that's an important and interesting uh, thing to recognize, which sovereign immunity in the context of state universities uh, really does remove uh, a lot of the traditional assumptions about the, incentive, uh, the incentives that tort law produces. And, and we want to talk more about those issues, but Bob Smith, I wonder if we could bring you into the conversation and have you give us an, an overview. I mean, your article appeared just shortly before the shootings at Virginia Tech, and you focused more on how current laws uh, impact colleges uh, with uh, students who are unbalanced for whatever reason. Can you elaborate and tell us more about what your article was on? Sure. Uh, uh, my colleague Dana uh, Fleming and I had been uh, working for a number of months on this article um, uh, really uh, stimulated by uh, the announcement of some uh, high-profile uh, suicide cases around the country, um, uh, some of which uh, settled, uh, and uh, another of which was won by the college. And, and we were troubled and continue to be troubled by uh, uh, a real effort of late to lay the blame for a complex societal problem to wit uh, uh, the growing numbers of uh, students with uh, mental disabilities and 
and significant mental health problems on campus. Uh, the growing effort to lay the blame for that uh, at the door of the colleges, um, while at the same time uh, laying on those colleges uh, a complex scheme of uh, privacy and other laws uh, that effectively deprive them of the tools to effectively deal with the complex societal problems. So that really was sort of the the point uh, of the opinion piece, uh, not so much to argue that colleges can uh, never be liable when something goes wrong, but that uh, a trend we see in holding them liable for suicidal students in particular, and I guess uh, it's not a big leap to assume Mr. Cho was suicidal, just sadly chose to take others with him on that day. Uh, it, it's, it's just not fair to hold the schools liable for uh, this kind of uh, uh, malevolent conduct, uh, while at the same time uh, handcuffing them from taking appropriate steps, which, by the way, Virginia uh, had uh, a month earlier done by the passage of a statute uh, which prohibited state universities from uh, expelling, expelling or disciplining uh, students with uh, suicide attempts or suicidal ideation. Now, you would distinguish this uh, uh, this law uh, from, say, uh, uh, the Hofstra case, which I mentioned in my column, where Hofstra was in fact found to have, at least under New York law, it's not a private university either. Um, at least it was found to have uh, the uh, liberty to uh, e- to um, to expel a student who had threatened uh, a professor. Now, uh, I think we both could agree that these are just two different cases. What I found interesting about the Hofstra case is, of course, it raised the specter of federal law because the student sued under the ADA, claiming right. that she was not given a reasonable accommodation. And I think we both can agree that in the example of a, a student who's threatening a professor, and I'm not speaking as a professor now, but a student who's threatening anyone, uh, you know, I think as a there's, there should be a fairly fair, fairly large degree of uh, of confidence that I think that's a that's that's a deal breaker. I think someone should be asked to leave um, the place, and whether or not they should do be more than done, done than that, I think everyone can agree on that. Well, you know, I I, I don't disagree, and and. And the Americans with Disabilities Act, the cases uh, around the country are clear that while you might have an obligation or a duty to try to accommodate the mental disability uh, by the provision of academic support services, you are not required to uh, accommodate the, uh, uh, some of the bad behaviors that are associated with those illnesses. And is, expelling, think- a, is expelling a student going to solve that problem? Because We've seen the circumstances when you fire postal workers and they get upset and they come back and they shoot up the post office. Isn't the same thing going to happen here? You just expel a student, you're just placing the problem somewhere else. Well, I, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. But, well, but, but that raises think, the question of what would be uh, the uh, breach of duty then of a university. Uh, short of expelling a student, it's hard to know what they can do to uh, protect uh, the student body uh, against the threat of attack before the attack materializes. You put them in for a mental evaluation, and if they're deemed to be a hazard and harm to society, you put them in a hospital until they get better, in a yeah, secure but, hospital. But what we've done as a society over the last 30 or 40 years, going back to the 1970s when we opened the doors to uh, all the mental hospitals and created the homeless problem, what we've done as, as a society in terms of the laws, rules, and regulations around privacy and and people's significant civil rights is we've made it extraordinarily difficult uh, uh, to force somebody to go for a medical evaluation or to involuntarily 
commit somebody or for a school to give somebody involuntary medical leave. And from the college and university perspective, which is mine, having devoted now the majority of my my professional time uh, to that problem, uh, who, who is it that's competent on the average liberal arts college campus to make the sort of initial medical assessments uh, necessary to be made in a circumstance like this? I don't know the answer to that. I suppose large schools with teaching hospitals and psychiatric professors roaming the campus might have a chance. But what does the small liberal arts school do in terms of making mental health decisions about students? And, and it, how far afield is that from their core mission? Don't, don't these discussions somewhat make the assumption that, that the negligence of the school is in the failure to identify this potential threat, the student who is a potential threat, but aren't there other areas in which the school could potentially be liable, uh, whether in, in having inadequate security, inadequate measures in place to respond, uh, uh, you know, failure to supervise? Uh, uh, I, I think you even, uh, uh, Professor Seabach, raised just, just uh, landowner liability issues and those types of things. Well, no, I, I agree that that is uh, a interesting line of inquiry, but I was uh, myself a little uh, um, flummoxed at trying to judge uh, what exactly the breach of duty was, given the facts as I know them. Uh, and this reminds me a little bit of how I reacted after 9-11 to um, allegations of breach of duty. And I actually changed my opinion. I, I first thought it was sort of uh, not realistic to say that air, airplane manufacturers breached a duty to passengers by not having doors that could be locked. And then I was slowly persuaded by others that, in fact, why not? Why not actually do that. Um, it's inexpensive, and it was rapidly done after the attacks. And so I guess it really does require at some point um, us to be open-minded. What could a uh, institution do? Um, this expression lockdown is a ridiculous expression. It doesn't mean anything. It's just taken from uh, TV shows. Um, sending out emails and telling people they should be aware of a risk that exists on a campus that's thousands of acres is also useless. Um, it doesn't really help anybody know what to do next. So I would actually really want to learn a little more about what cost-effective measures could be taken if you know that somebody has shot two people and that they have left the campus, as this man did, to go to a post office. What do you do then? Or, or what could have been done in advance to possibly alleviate the, the impact of a, of a situation like this occurring? I mean, is that a legitimate area as well? I mean, could there, well, could there well, sure. have been? Yeah. Sure, sure. But, but you know, the, the, if we all go back to sort of our first year of torts class and we talk about duty, breach of duty, uh, foreseeability, and causation, you have a serious question in this case about whether there was a duty that was breached other than, you know, to have a reasonably safe campus and have a police department and, you know, fire alarms and smoke detectors and all the other things that are reasonable for the uh, health, safety, and welfare of your students. You have a significant question about duty, but it seems to me you have a deeper uh, and, and much more problematic question about foreseeability or, or causation. I think society in general, and society in particular, is reflected in a jury pool, is going to have significant problems trying to say that the administration of a college uh, would be able to foresee uh, 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 a mass tragedy on this scale. Well, I actually have, uh, I guess I should, we don't really disagree very much, but I would, for the sake of pushing this point, 
again, it reminds me of 9-11. I actually don't have much trouble imagining that this is foreseeable, not just through hindsight. I do have trouble imagining what exactly a um, reasonable investment of safety would be. You know this better than I do. It's one thing to say that uh, a risk is foreseeable. It's another thing to say that there's an investment of safety, which is um, practicable for the defendant, that they should have expended it. I have no idea what... It's not that unforeseeable that uh, mentally disturbed people can uh, take uh, hold of weapons and, and shoot people in buildings. That's obvious. We know that. But, but, but that's, so that's what? Sort of a, what do we do in that? Well, uh, but, but, Professor, that's, with all due respect, that's a rather uh, um, broad meaning of what, what we talk about when we, when we talk about the foreseeability. It's, it's not sure. It's foreseeable that standing, uh, standing in my window right now, the guy across the street could shoot me. But I don't think that uh, 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 somebody who had the duty to protect me w- would foresee that. I mean, there's lots of things that are possible in this crazy world we live in, but I don't think that gives them the, the legal foreseeability uh, we're talking about. But, you know, I was traveling during this horrible incident, and uh, one of the aftermaths that, that hit me as I stood in line at the airport to come back to the professor's 9-11 analogies, I, I thought to myself, my God, are college campuses going to become like air travel now? Metal detectors in the doors and take your shoes and your belts off and you know, no gels and no hairsprays and no toothpaste. And Are they going to begin to resemble uh, medium security prisons? And what a terrible, terrible thing that would be for, uh, for our society uh, based on, uh, uh, frankly, um, uh, an unexplained, uh, unforeseen uh, tragedy of monumental proportions in, in one industry. Well, Bob, you mentioned that the pendulum started to swing in the 70s toward privacy and opening up mental hospitals and making it difficult to put people away. Do you think that this event is a signal that the pendulum has swung as far as it's going to swing, and then it's going to, we're going to start a society moving back toward uh, tightening up on uh, privacy and opening up the possibility that more people will be you know, mentally evaluated and, and potentially put away? Uh, well, I don't know about the put away part, but I know that the caring, good people that work in higher education, or as we speak, and since this tragedy and even before this tragedy, have been uh, speaking and talking and working with ways to cope with this mental health crisis that has the wave of mental health crisis that has landed on their shores. And to the extent that uh, FERPA and other of these alphabet soup privacy laws uh, have a chilling effect on our ability to deal with those things, I know there's a congressman in Pennsylvania now who's moving to amend that, But I will tell you there will be among some colleges, and the market will decide who's successful, if they take steps, strong steps to protect the the children, then the parents will send the children there. Um, Yes, there will be uh, a pushback now against the age that says it's okay for a college student to come into class, uh, glare at the teacher, and turn in bloodlust poetry and not expect any consequences from that. Well, that's actually, I guess, where I would like to sort of take the conversation, because the, 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 this particular case uh, is a little uh, tricky for us. Uh, the, uh, the individual was, in fact, um, compelled 
to an outpatient clinic uh, and was forced to uh, be examined by a uh, mental health professional who then made a, d- a judgment uh, that uh, he was not uh, a threat to himself or to others. So in some sense, um, you could imagine that had that um, power been granted to a university administrator, the same thing could have happened. And what we really need to ask is, are there um, other uh, steps that could be taken uh, where there's not a uh, professional judgment? It's possible that the problem with this case is that some professional made a misjudgment. But as we know, uh, therapists and psychiatrists will tell you it's very hard to predict at least whether someone's going to be uh, injurious to others. It may be easier to predict whether they'll be injurious to themselves, but it's very hard to predict whether they'll be injurious to others. It's just by nature incredibly imprecise science. So then the question is, is there um, steps that uh, you would recommend uh, short of uh, being based on a uh, professional judgment of threat to others that would be protective of the general population of students? So, you know, this guy would pass the test. He actually wasn't injurious to others, according to one professional. Do you think that professional breached a duty? Probably not. No, from what I know about the standard of care, this person probably fell within the reasonable margin of error. Well, I think I think we need a societal response to a societal problem, and what I think we have to do is see. Uh, and by the way, on the uh, on the idea of that judge uh, ordering him to to uh, uh, a clinic, and then the clinic letting him go on an outpatient basis instead of an inpatient basis. Those facts are favorable, in my view, to Virginia Tech from an avoidance of liability theory because the argument clearly is mental health professionals did not make an assessment that he was an immediate threat. Oh, I completely agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. How could we we possibly have made that assessment? But it's not favorable for whether or not they could have taken steps short of being based on commitment on this extreme level. What about the idea that maybe knowing that there's such a grade of error, they should have taken steps that did not go as extreme as committing him, but protecting their own students. Well, I think you'll see some schools move to that. I think you'll see some schools move to a model that becomes much less tolerant of, of uh, bizarre behavior, uh, of, of rantings in one's term papers and, and poems and, and the like, and uh, uh, a less... Uh, uh, willing to accept, well, you know, he's just a kid and he's being creative and all that other kind of stuff. I, I, I think as part of the pendulum pushing back, you're going to see colleges less uh, responsive to that. As a matter of our academic freedom, our constitutional academic freedom, going back to Felix Frankfurt, the right to decide who may teach and who may be taught, um, at least from the private school point of view, would, would allow private schools to be uh, uh, hold students to a much higher standard of conduct, uh, both in word and deed and in, and in the written paper, and begin to ease these people out. The, the public schools have a, uh, a different problem with that because of, you know, First Amendment rights uh, and other things that obtain at those schoolhouse doors that do not obtain at the private school. We'll continue this discussion in just a moment. We're going to take a short break and get back with our guests in, in just uh, a couple minutes. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. 
Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. Did you know that Legal Talk Network podcasts are also available as CLE? Visit Law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. That's clecenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs, J. Craig Williams' blog at mayitpleasethecourt.com, likewise Robert Ambrogi's blog at legalline.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. We'd like to welcome back. Professor Anthony Seabach uh, from Brooklyn School of Law and Attorney Robert Smith, a higher education attorney in Boston, who've both written uh, articles recently about uh, higher education institutions' uh, liability uh, for, uh, I guess, aberrant behavior by students. And uh, something that struck me uh, in in the media coverage of, of the Virginia Tech shootings in the days afterward was was a, a sense of discomfort with exploring this question of the the college's potential liability, uh, and uh, I, I I wonder uh, your thoughts on on whether you know whether and why this is a, a legitimate area of inquiry or or is this ambulance chasing? I don't think it's um, it's ambulance cha- chasing per se, but uh, I would share uh, uh, the other guests' uh, concern that. Uh, just because legitimate questions can be raised, discovery can be initiated, shouldn't mean that this is just going to be the opportunity for uh, an instant settlement. Um, I think that uh, it's a really hard question um, whether or not uh, there is uh, anything that, for example, Virginia Tech could have done that we would find um, reasonable. I very much sympathize with the comment made earlier that um, the balance has to be made between security and liberty in every one of these contexts. We don't want universities to look like our airports. I'm not even going to sure we want our airports to look like our airports. 
And um, it's not clear to me that litigation is the place to make those judgments. Um, maybe the better place to make those judgments, as messy as it is, is the legislative process. So um, if the question is, should uh, Virginia Tech, short of having confidence that this guy was going to hurt other people, should they have expelled him or restricted his uh, movements in the campus as a private landowner um, based merely on his um, aberrant behavior? I really wonder whether or not we want to move to that kind of world. Bob Smith, your thoughts on that? Well, you know, at least at least we know in Virginia that the uh, legislature saw fit to actually forbid the state school from from expelling somebody like this. I'd uh, love, love to know the legislative history uh, behind that and what motivated uh, that sort of uh, knee-jerk reaction to, let's say, the George Washington case or the, uh, the Hunter College case where the schools uh, tried to ban people from uh, classes or the dormitory uh, and then ended up with... Uh, uh, with the uh, lawsuits uh, that uh, caused reputational harm and, and that they had to settle. But I will say, I will say you're better off having a privacy lawsuit than you are a death lawsuit. What about the larger I, question of the legitimacy of exploring the liability here of, of, of other parties beyond, beyond the shooter, who, who, as Professor Seabach points out in his article, is clearly the, the, the most directly responsible and, and the most responsible here? Well, I, I think I, I, I'm never adverse to... to uh, having uh, uh, an after-action uh, investigation to see whether uh, uh, an institution that I represent uh, could uh, take uh, additional uh, security measures uh, to guard against uh, some untoward event. I'm not sure in this case it would be it would it would be much used. But I was struck by something one of you said about how well there there seemed to be reluctance to blame the schools and the media. I had the absolute op- opposite reaction because within. Uh, the next of kin had not yet been notified, and the talking heads on CNN uh, were introducing uh, so-called witnesses about the young man's behavior to say that they would, uh, these witnesses would come on and indict the school and show the school had proof. And I remember one in particular was the poet Nikki Giovanni. Paul Azan introduced her to say she's going to come on and tell you that the man was in her class and she knew he was crazy and she threatened to quit, and she didn't say anything remotely like that. So the blame game did start within minutes. Uh, uh, of this uh, tragedy, and the blame game started before the next of kin had uh, even been notified, and that I think is an indictment of our society. Rather than rather than uh, get some people together uh, to uh, fix the problem, uh, we get people who don't know anything about the evidence on the ground who start fixing the blame. That's a stinging indictment of media, Professor Seabach. Your take? Uh, well, actually, I uh, I. I'm less concerned about the uh, the the uh, media's coverage of this and their really reckless and probably harmless claims than what actually then happens once real lawyers get hold of the cases. Um, I'm sure that the that the coverage that's been described probably might affect the school's uh, willingness to settle uh, at some point, but um, I'm not so sure because in the end, uh, practical. Good judgment that general counsels for universities and the plaintiffs' lawyers have, uh, I think, is really what controls the decision whether or not to settle a case. I am a little concerned, though, about um, just what trial judges are willing to allow uh, juries and fact finders to uh, to hear, and what they think actually are the legal determinations about duty. That worries me much more. Uh, I have to say, I was a little struck by something I read today in um, the New York Times. Uh, there was a piece uh, about. Um, litigation that surrounded the Columbine. Um, I guess I'd forgotten that the parents of the two boys who 
committed these terrible crimes were sued. Um, they had homeowners insurance. I mean, I have to say, there's just something I, I don't know a lot, and I, I didn't. Uh, the depositions are under seal, so it's extremely hard for me to judge their uh, breach of duty, so to speak, to the families of the other students. But these parents, their lives were devastated. It must be devastating to have a child who is sick and then who does something like this, and then to be held in breach of duty under our common law. It just struck me as a strange way of responding to the to the to the event. Well, you know, let me turn that argument and say that the schools, uh, which under some theories are trying to be held uh, liable in local parentis, uh, are devastated by what happened on their campus. Uh, and and to turn around and 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 uh, apply a common law duty to prevent uh, the kind of evil that occurred that day uh, strikes me as uh, particularly sad. I'm as not well. disagreeing with you. And the only thing I would say that sort of I guess to place your comment in context is we know from social science research that lay people happen to have this very high expectation of bureaucracies to be able to anticipate and predict um, uh, events more so than, say, the average person. So they sort of are easily persuaded that a quote-unquote bureaucracy, now no bureaucracy is really ever as um, seamless and mechanical as it looks on the outside from the inside. From the inside, bureaucracy is just people trying to do their jobs, but or and, like parents are just trying to do what they're supposed to do, which is raise a child. But Lay people do have, and maybe this has been encouraged by the popular media, uh, this image of uh, institutions like Boston University or like George Washington University or like uh, my own law school, being able to sort of like um, gather information instantly, process it, and the only thing that prevents them from doing, quote, unquote, the right thing is that they don't want to spend the money. Right. Well, that's, that's a, a very much a, a misconception uh, in, in my experience, but... You know, I, I'm also, I want to get in uh, back to a little something we touched upon earlier. One of the, uh, the uh, Wall Street Journal had a piece today on the front page about how the privacy laws keep you from letting the kids' parents know and all this sort of thing. And, you know, pointing out how complex this problem is, um, what if the parents are the cause of the young person's uh, psychological problem? What does letting the parents know do for anybody? Um, yeah. I throw that out because it's just one more thread in this incredibly twisted ball of twine that my clients have been left to deal with. Are, are you thinking about the MIT case, for example? I mean, the where, MIT case, or, where or there's or a very complex cases. relationship between the parents and the uh, and the institution, and it's unclear to know exactly <laughs> how to well, but no, think I, about I, that. I, I represented a client who had a graduate student. Uh, 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 a leap from the uh, Charles River Bridge here in Massachusetts. And one of the questions, of course, that the uh, lawyer for the estate of the deceased said was, well, you know, why didn't the treating physicians uh, notify the parents? Well, it turned out the father was the cause of the young woman's uh, uh, distress. Well, unfortunately, we don't we don't have time to answer all these questions, uh, and there are many, as you say. But uh, we're we're nearing we're nearing the end of our time, and we want to give each of you an opportunity to offer your your final thoughts on this topic, and also to tell our listeners uh, how they can uh, find out more about about you. So, uh, Professor Seebach, let's start with you. Uh, if you could uh, offer sure. your final thoughts and tell our listeners yeah. how they can touch with you. Professor Seabach, before we get started, I want to toss in just one final thought um, to give you some focus on, on what you're going to talk about. Virginia is famous as one of its founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, who founded the University of Virginia, not far from Virginia Tech, for his belief that the risk should lie where it falls. 
Uh, in other words, it's something that the you just as a society have to recognize that risk occurs, and you should be the one to absorb it if you're if the risk falls on you. And if you could address that in your final thoughts, I'd appreciate it. Sure. Um, I think that the uh, that there really are two uh, questions. I mean, one is whether or not public institutions should be held to the same standards as private institutions. And the second is, um, if we're going to hold everyone to the same standard, uh, whether or not uh, we've developed um, unrealistic expectations of the ability of any institution, public or private, to actually prevent harm. Uh, I think that uh, there's two very different views about the purpose of uh, tort law. One is to uh, to uh, compensate without regard necessarily to responsibility. The other one is to try and really take seriously the concept of responsibility. And in the context of uh, wrongful death claims, especially, um, it's really hard to see the justification to try and compensate without taking seriously responsibility. And if you take the concept of responsibility seriously, it's very possible that in a tragedy like this, um, the parents aren't actually legally responsible. It's possible the university is not legally responsible. It's possible that the only legally responsible person is a mentally ill person who is now dead. And that there really is no need, as Jefferson and Virginia say, to move money from one pocket to another to rectify the loss. And, oh, my contact information, I think the best way to reach me is uh, through my uh, uh, column at uh, RIT, which is published by Fine Law at www.finelaw.com, which is a legal uh, uh, website, and I write every two weeks on issues in tort law and public policy. And, Bob Smith, we'll put it to you. Well, my, my final thoughts on the matter are, are sort of to reiterate what I tried to open with. Uh, through the uh, miracles of modern medicine and uh, improvements in uh, psychopharmaceuticals of every kind and stripe, the uh, higher education industry, which is a very important one in this country, uh, finds itself uh, 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 not overwhelmed, but facing increasing numbers of people with uh, mental health problems. And if we're going to be held uh, liable for that, if it's going to ultimately become, if the harm, if harm flows from that, it's ultimately going to be laid at our doorstep, and that our treasury is going to have to open to compensate people for that. Uh, that's wrong, and it's time for society as a whole to come together, and and come up with a plan, and come up with re- a reasonable set of laws, rules, and regulations uh, that permit. Uh, schools and colleges uh, to function in the modern society, to take steps to protect themselves uh, and their campuses, and to remove uh, people uh, who they deem to be unfit to be on their campuses for whatever reason, uh, uh, and and held harmless for that in the absence of some showing of maliciousness or, or bad faith. Well, how can our listeners contact you? Well, I, this is a debate. Long after this is off the headlines, this is a debate that uh, all of us in higher education are going to have, and I intend to be fully engaged in that and would welcome comments. Uh, the best place to follow what we do is uh, on our website at www.nkms.com slash college blog, but I'm also happy to give out my email address, which is rsmith at nkms.com, because I welcome uh, comments, criticisms, and suggestions, because the way you deal with complex problems is you have a discussion with reasonable people about it, uh, and you come to some sort of meeting of the minds. Well, thank you very much to both of our guests. This has been a really fascinating show, and we appreciate each of you taking the time to join us. My thank pleasure. You. Thank you. 
And Craig, uh, we'll be back next week with another installment of Lawyer to Lawyer. And hopefully not as tragic a one, and, but perhaps one with just as many thorny problems. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and Jake Craig Williams. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.